In his book, The Laws of Simplicity, John Maeda says that simplicity is about subtracting the obvious and adding the meaningful. Our final guest this season, Eileen Fisher, is a master at making the simple meaningful. Eileen is the founder of her eponymous and iconic fashion brand, Eileen Fisher, Inc., which is known for its ethical and sustainable practices and elegant yet simple clothing. She started the company in 1984 and grew it from her first sale of $3,000 to annual revenue of over $300 million. Not bad. We chat with Eileen about her design principles, how she thinks about form, function, and sustainability, and how systems thinking has helped her develop a brand that stands the test of time. We're so glad you joined us for the sixth season of our show, and we hope that you were inspired along the way. Stay tuned for the next season, and in the meantime, we're going to be sharing some of our best episodes from past seasons, just in case you missed them. Thank you for listening. As a Design Better listener, we think you'll enjoy Tools and Weapons. It's a podcast hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Brad's conversations with leaders at the intersection of the promise and perils of the digital age touch on some fascinating topics, like the new AI economy and how AI is becoming a tool in the battle against hunger. On a recent episode, Brad was taken to Venice, Italy, where he connected with Eve Ubelmanhoff of Iconum. It's a startup that specializes in 3D digitization of endangered cultural heritage sites. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone capture photography and some powerful AI tools to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. How cool is that? On tools and weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, you should subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith, wherever finer podcasts are served. Eileen Fisher, thank you for joining us on the Design Better podcast. Well, my pleasure, Aaron. Nice to be here. There are lots of things we want to talk to you about today. Your perspective on design we think is particularly unique, especially in the fashion world. Many of our listeners come from a digital design background, though lots of different types of designers listen to the show. And we find it tremendously valuable to talk to people who are maybe in adjacent spaces to hear how they solve problems. To start us off, curious if you could talk to us going back to those early days as you were starting to form your vision as a designer. So that would be like in the early to mid-80s where you had a clear perspective emerging about fashion and how you wanted to dress, how you saw your customer, you know, potential customer dressing. Could you talk to us a little bit about that vision that you had? Yeah, I didn't actually study fashion design. I come out of interior design and graphic design. So I kind of think I come with a different mentality. I think about what lasts, for example, like timelessness, enduring design, And I was first inspired to actually create this concept when I was in Japan. And I was inspired by the kimono and just in general, the simple and natural kind of aesthetic of Japan, but in particular the kimono. And I love the idea that one shape was the main shape that everyone wore for like over a thousand years in Japan. And so I was inspired by that idea that you could create something that would last 
that a, a shape would kind of define the design. And when I grew up, I I did sew with my mom, and my mother was very much about saving every scrap of fabric and making these simple little shift dresses and things back in the 50s and 60s and that kind of thing. And I wore a uniform in grade school and high school. When I found myself in New York, I remember feeling like, whoa, it had been so easy to get dressed when I was young, even though I didn't like the uniform. I liked the idea that it was simple, get up in the morning, put it on and go. You know, you don't have to think so much. So I wanted to create something that worked like that, but that wasn't kind of just quite so boring, that <laughs> had some options and ele- different elements. And so I started kind of thinking of it as a system, as a kind of kit of parts or like different puzzle pieces that could work together in different ways. In the beginning, it became very much about finding the right fabric. What are the ingredients or the elements of this design concept? So the shapes were a key piece, and I kind of always saw pictures of shapes, simple little wide leg pants. You know, I still make them today, little kind of box top, simple, easy kind of shapes. So it was a combination of shape, fabric, which was, you know, kind of the the product itself had to be made out of material fabric. So the fabric was a critical piece. And of course, color and then, you know, texture and how it comes together and how the pieces work. It's a very graphic designer perspective. For example, like Milton Glaser has this principle that style is not to be trusted versus if we looked at fashion design philosophy is typically like there's a different season, there's a different theme And that shifts pretty dramatically. You'd see some sort of like similarity across different seasons, but it does shift style quite a bit versus your philosophy, which is very much about timeless systems. Right. It's interesting because in the clothing business, you do have seasons because you want to wear clothes that belong to the seasonal conditions. So in the summer, you just feel like wearing linen or cotton because it breathes and it's cool. And, and in the winter, you want to be cozier or warmer and you wear wools and cashmere maybe or, you know, that kind of thing. So you do want to respond to the season, but you don't want to be stuck in the trends of the moment, you know. And at the same time, you want to be relevant to the times, you know, so we have sort of library of shapes, you know, that we work with and that we shift from year to year. We feature different things or lean into things that maybe belong to the trend in a certain kind of way, like proportion a little bit or something like that, or color. It might makes us feel relevant or like we belong. But I think what's really surprising is how it lasts over time. And I'm even surprised by it because we have this program, I'm not sure if you're familiar, we call Renew, which is we take our clothes back from our customers and we recycle them, we resell them. And what I find is I was terrified when we first started this program 15 years ago that I was going to like, oh my God, hate everything and remember all the mistakes and all of that. And even just today, we're pulling out still things from our Renew program and oh, look at this and right, let's do that one again. And it's still relevant. And, you know, we find young people wanting to shop our vintage clothes. And that's really interesting to me and that they're relevant and the parts still fit with the new pieces going forward. 
I think this will probably resonate with a lot of our audience who are product designers who think about design systems a lot and reusable components. And how within these systems do you think about still creating a brand feel so that it's not just you know generic components, but people that identify it as Eileen Fisher? Right. Well, I think important aspects that are Eileen Fisher, I guess, are just simplicity, comfort, ease, movement. There's a certain fluidity about these clothes, a certain idea that one should move and eat and dance and all those kinds of things in our clothes. And so because they're so simple, they dress up or dress down. And I think women really like that. They can wear a simple dress and wear it to work or patchouli on, go out or not take it off when they come home and grab their kids and sit on the floor and throw it in the washing machine. So, you know, the clothes have that kind of versatility. I think that's important. So we have our sort of principles and, you know, ideas of how we design and what kinds of pieces fit or don't fit. The other thing is we don't do a lot of patterns or prints You know, we have done stripes and we have done prints over the years, and it's not that we don't do them, but it's minimal in the way we do them. We do a lot of, you know, pretty solid colors, just, and we do color, though we do, this season in particular, I think with COVID, we got really inspired about color and, you know, did some fun yellows and greens and things like that, which maybe would have been brighter than we would have done in the past. So we are definitely inspired by the times. And we definitely have our own aesthetic. I'm always surprised when people say, oh my God, you've been the same for so long. And I'm like, to me, I see all the differences, you know, because I'm so close to it. But from the outside, I think people see it's simple, it's comfortable, it's versatile and moves and fits a lot of people and things like that. In design, especially in video game design, there's a concept of an open system versus a closed system. A closed system would be like Mario Brothers, Super Mario Brothers, Uh where you can only like go forward. And an open system might be like, I'm dating myself because I don't play video games these days, (laughs) but like The Sims, where you, you just like wander around a world and discover what's happening. And it seems like the way that you think about design is very different from other fashion designers in that you've got an open system. Whereas a lot of designers will have a really great piece. Maybe it's very iconic and has a fantastic print, but that print kind of doesn't have a lot of versatility. What do you pair with that? It's very limiting. And so then when you go to pack your suitcase, your suitcase is huge because you want to wear that cool shirt, but it requires that one pair of pants. And then the next day and the next day, and you don't have that versatility of an open system. Do you think about that? Like the ability for other pieces to fit into your line, into that design system, that you're designing an open system instead of a closed system? It's interesting. It's like a different language. You know, I I guess I don't really talk to people outside of my industry too often. So I'm intrigued by that idea, open system, closed system. I think that idea, I'm, I'm stuck now on the packing and traveling because we're kind of also known for that too, that our clothes are so great for travel because, mm. you know, because of the way they pack. And that's not the point, but the point is what you're talking about systems and the way they work and work together. And when we add pieces, it's kind of like we're putting a few more pieces into the puzzle. It multiplies the possible ways you can wear your clothes just by adding a few more pieces. Part of what we do actually is we work with a consistent sort of, maybe this is a closed system, but it's not totally closed, a a consistent system of fabrics. You know, we're pretty 
focused on, you know, sustainable materials. And we like our customers to get to know and be really familiar and comfortable with our fabrics. And, and so then we change colors or add different shapes. And so we play within a system of fabrics. And I think that's what helps one to sort of build a wardrobe, the, you know, this consistent shapes and fabrics and I don't know if I answered your question about open system or closed system because it's a little bit of a new language for me. But I like thinking about it like that. What I'm working on actually right now is to define sort of the blueprint of what this system is because, well, I'm 71 years old and I've been doing this a long time. And though I strangely still love it, I picture that it's going to need you know, to go on without me. And uh, there have been phases where I've been less close to the design, where I've been a little unhappy and kind of got a little out of the pattern of what I think the design concept is. And so I've been trying to kind of land that blueprint and kind of really define how to design within this concept so that new designers coming in can follow. But also there's, it's a very, in a way, open system. There's a lot of derivatives of the shapes and the proportions, a lot of different ways to change the neckline or add a sleeve or lengthen or narrow or shorten. There's many ways to just, you know, work within the concept and lots of options to be creative, but to stay within the frame or the fence, so to speak. But I have to define that a little more clearly. That's what I'm really working on right now. So, Right. How do you document that? Like, what are the mechanics of actually documenting that? So everyone can access that? Well, I'm struggling with that, but I have a great partner. He's helping me do this. He's our internal now. He's working our sort of chief creative officer, and he's helping me to actually lay out the way of thinking about shape, the way of thinking about fabric, the way of thinking about color, and the way of thinking about how to wear, how to put it together. He's redesigning our website, things like that, so that we kind of can come to understand the system approach and find your wardrobe within it and all of that. We're actually thinking of it as our conscious closet. How do we plan? How do we think? How do we add pieces that help each customer to build her wardrobe? But he's helping with the blueprint concept. And a couple, I have another designer who's been with me for 25 years, and she's also helping in the process because I tried to do it myself and get kind of overwhelmed, you know? So I think the reason I need a system is because I struggle to organize myself. I always say that I need comfortable clothes because I'm sort of uncomfortable and I, I need an organized system of clothes because my closet's kind of a mess. So I'm always trying to organize my life, you know? So I kind of come out of what I need. Others must also need <laughs> solving the problem. Eileen, earlier you touched on design principles, and we're curious how you arrived at your own design principles, and I imagine your time in Japan and the simplicity of design there played a part in that. I also worked with a couple of pretty talented designers when I was younger. That was really interesting, and you probably don't know them. Earl Ferguson was a architect and designer that actually designed my offices. He designed my home, but I worked with him when I was 22 years old and I learned a lot from him. And he, he was just a great designer. You know, he didn't do lots of, you know, huge projects or anything, just a great design thinker. And I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot from Ray Yoshimura, graphic designer. I worked with, also he was my 
personal partner too. That's how I ended up in Japan. So both of them were really talented designers. And so I learned from them. And I think some of it was intuitive too. You know, I follow my own instincts. And one thing about clothing that is different, I think, like I'm thinking back to graphics and interiors is that clothing is very feeling oriented, you know? So I often find myself talking about form, function, from you know, sort of design principles, but I also talk about feeling. And that's the kind of softer side of clothing. It's like, so there's always kind of this emotional reaction, like, oh, how does that fabric make me feel? Or like, how do I respond when I see that thing or touch that thing? Ergonomics and all of that was an important part of interior design. Graphics didn't quite have I mean, emotional response, like when something snaps together and you know you have the right thing, you have an emotional response to it. But I'm always, I'm always thinking about that, you know. It's like, I'm like, can I dance in this garment? Does it have the right feeling for me, you know? So, you know, that's something that's the magic piece that's a little bit hard to fit perfectly in the system sometimes, you know. So it's, there's always that kind of little surprise element that you have to kind of wait for or be open to. The magic piece. I don't know how that works with tech design, but I'm sure it's there too because it's there. Yeah, it's always magic to me how it even works. You know. <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, we're all designing for an emotional experience at some point. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm curious. Have you figured out how that would be documented for those who come after you? Like that instinct, the feel that you have of like, are there some guiding principles there? Well, I am making a note about that because I don't think we have that in the document yet. And I think that's really interesting because I just came out of a meeting where we were talking about color for next fall. And I could just feel certain people responding to certain colors and, you know, that where the energy was. And I think it's really important, the intuition. I actually had somebody who worked for me years ago who did a project on intuition. And I think we didn't really go anywhere with it, but you're reminding me. But that's a really important piece to document and to have people learn to tune in to how did they feel when they saw that and which garments, you know, gave them that reaction and what happened when they put it on. Sometimes you look at something and you don't get the reaction and then, you, you know, you put it on and you go like, whoa, this feels different than I thought it was going to feel. Now, now I get it, what you're trying to do. So it's sort of that combination you know, of like, what's that feeling when I just look at it, when I see a color, when I see something so that there's that. And then there's that what happens when I actually put it on my body and touch it and sense it and, you know, feel it. And then like, I think about customers and that everyone's different. And so what happens when they go into the dressing room and try things on? You're always trying to get people into the dressing room. Just try it. See what you think. You know, the response is different because people are different. Some things don't work on some people. And it don't doesn't feel right, you know. Sometimes the great things just tend to work on almost everyone. I don't know what that is, you know, some kind of magic. But people are different body types, different needs, different feeling, different everything. So that's the hard thing about designing clothes too is really designing to be inclusive for everyone to consider different body types, to consider different color types, you know, different lifestyle needs. It's daunting at times. So. Just try to, try to do what you can do and try not to get overwhelmed is sort of what I try to say, but don't always succeed. So I think there's this emotional component to the design of your clothing, and then there's the form and the function. And it sounds like 
being inclusive and being sustainable, those are also important goals. How do you go about balancing all these goals, which might be a tension sometimes? Yeah, sustainability has been a huge one lately that we really struggle with because we keep working to go deeper. And, you know, sometimes we have real emotional response to something that's actually not the most sustainable materials. That's something I'm struggling a lot with right now, the relationship between those things and, you know, where we draw the line and the lines are are not totally solid yet, you know, just like absolutely not certain materials. Yes, absolutely not to certain materials, but then other things, there's a little more gray. Like, for example, we've all of our cottons are organic. We just decided we're not doing any more conventional cotton. All of our linens are organic. Where it gets a little um, more difficult is in some of the other areas. Like we used viscose, rayon and viscose for years. And then we found out that rayon, uh, we knew it kind of came from wood pulp. We know it's biodegradable, which is important. I'm a big believer in natural fibers. But then we found out that we couldn't trace the rayon, and it might be coming from the rainforest. And so they might be actually tearing down the rainforest to make viscose. So we decided we were going to phase it out of our clothing. And it's been a long and difficult process. But we have almost switched everything over. I think we still have a fabric one left that we're struggling with, but almost switched everything over to Tencel. And that's an amazing kind of reinvention of rayon, all the wood pulp they use is traceable and they use a closed loop technology. They clean the water as they go. It's really amazing. And then of course it's biodegradable and it makes lovely, lovely drapey fabric. And so we're really using a lot of it and it's selling well. So we're happy. It was a difficult transition, but it's served us well. And so we just keep looking for new things like that and trying to solve some of the other issues. And wool, for example, there's issues with wool. And, you know, we are moving towards regenerative wool, which is really, really exciting because you can actually, like with Tencel, clean the water as you go, but you can actually regenerate the land while you're making wool, you know, raising sheep and, you know, the way they do it, they actually regenerate the land. So we can actually have a positive impact by using wool, which in some cases, yeah, you know, there's a lot of not good about using wool. So it's a wonderful, biodegradable, breathable fabric. I love it. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, 
and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash designbetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash designbetter. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities, buy as many user licenses as you need, and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's crashplan.com slash design better, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan. One thing that's really fascinating to us is how clearly you and the whole company have articulated your design principles and mission and vision. And you've even taken the extra steps of publishing that for your customers to see. This is what is important to us. One of those principles you've been speaking to indirectly is circles over lines. I wonder if you could talk to us about your principles and why it's important to make those public to everybody. Well, we want to be transparent. We want people included in the sort of imperfectness of what we're trying to do and that we're in process. And, you know, we want to help them understand what we're trying to do and what our big goals are like. We really want to be a circular company. We want to take responsibility for all the materials that we use, all the products we put out there, all the dye processing, all the things involved in it. And it is incredibly complex. And so, you know, we work at it every day and just try to keep getting better. And we include our customers in like trying to tell them what we're doing and inviting them to bring their clothes back and be a part of the circle and, you know, the clothes we can't resell, we're starting to remake into other products, you know, small bags, they can purchase them online, you know, pillows, a few things like that. We're just starting to really build into the circular idea. We even dream of like telling all the ingredients on our clothes and all the places everything has been. And we're just 
getting ready to do more of that kind of thing. So we just want everyone to be included because it's a really complex story and we need everyone's support to keep making it better. And we also want to share with other companies, you know, because we feel like, you know, we could meet our goal of being a fully circular company, which will take us, of course, years. But even if we do, if we don't help other companies to get there, we're not going to solve the climate crisis. We're not going to be helpful enough by just getting ourselves where we want to be. So the more we let other people know what we're trying to do, the more other brands are interested and trying to sh- you know share what we're trying to do with them, th- them with us, those kinds of things. We build more, a better future. That's really a bigger goal. Do you ever compare notes with Yvonne Chouinard and yes. the Patagonia team? Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. We have our teams very connected. Yvonne, I've spoken with a few times. Rose Macario, I was talking to once a week during COVID. She really helped me through the crisis. She was the CEO there for 12 years. And we are very connected behind the scenes. Lots of our team, our sustainability teams and design teams are connected to their teams. We're involved in lots of different organizations trying to move industry forward. And it's a lot. We need a lot of investment. We need a lot of awareness. We need customers to be more and more aware of the industry, you know, make better, more conscious choices. We didn't even touch the workers and all those issues. There's a lot. There's a lot. But there's a lot we can do. There's a lot of possibilities. And through design, we can make the world better. It's kind of amazing to me. I mean, I teach a product design class where the students come up with product ideas, and occasionally they'll actually start companies around them. And one that came out this past year, actually maybe a year and a half ago now, was a fashion company that uses dead stock, a material uh-huh. that's you know unused to, to create clothing. Their name, company's name is Oddly. And what I've noticed over the past eight years teaching is that students are more and more interested in the kind of social impact of the companies that they either start or join. And have you found that you've been able to kind of use this in some ways as a recruiting tool? Like since you're so focused on this, it's, it's helped you get young designers and other employees interested and engaged with the work you do. I think it's really important. I think that people want to be engaged in meaningful work, even clothing designers, fashion designers, so to speak, want to feel their work matters. And everyone's aware of the climate crisis and the issues, human rights issues in the supply chains. And everyone wants to participate in the companies that are trying to make a difference. And we want to feel our lives matter. And, you know, we're not just making stuff and selling stuff and all that. So I think that that makes for better, easier recruiting, people wanting to work here and people loyal staying. We have many longtime employees. Yeah, it's important. Meaningful work. Speaking of your employees, I think at this point you've got roughly 1,200 employees. Well, after COVID, we have only about 800 now. That was a serious downsizing we went through. It was a very difficult time for us. Very painful. You know, I mean, we were closed for three months. All of our stores, department stores canceled three months worth of orders. Everything stopped in our supply chain. We were worried about our organic farmers. We were just trying to pay the bills and survive through it. And so it was a really heartbreaking moment for us. And, you know, we went through several rounds of layoffs, which is also the worst way to do it. But we never expected COVID to go on as long as it did. And there were silver linings in the midst of it all. We 
for me, it felt like a chance to rethink and really come back to the center of the design process and really, you know, work hard on this blueprint and really make sure, you know, we were going to land the philosophy and be able to move it forward for more generations. So that, that was a good thing in the end. The early days, it was you, right? I mean, yeah. you you were the designer, the visionary, the person who was sort of like setting the standard of here's what we're going to make, defining the principles and so forth. And you went through what I can only presume would be very difficult to grow a company where you have total control over the creative process to slowly paying that out to other people. And I would assume at some points, other people, even though you've vetted them well, worked alongside them very closely, they have their own perspectives that sometimes will deviate from yours. Could you talk to us about how you navigated that challenge of letting go of the creative process and how you remain creatively inspired and you know still seen as, as a leader through those transitions? For many years, the thing worked pretty organically. I think because I'd been at the center of it for the first 15 years or so, and then there were so many people there in the middle that stayed for so long. And so a lot of things just kind of built out from there. So that sort of happened naturally. I think it got particularly hard about four or five years ago when a lot of the original team began to retire, <laughs> you know, and move on and trying to hire new people in without this blueprint or without enough articulation of what the idea was. I feel like we went off track and there were lots of things that weren't feeling like they belonged. So I think that I would say that I, we didn't have a great structure or process in place because it had happened so organically and it had come through the people. And so I think that's another piece of what I've been working really hard on the last year is reorganizing the teams and, you know, really looking at all the designers and all the talent and really trying to understand everyone's gifts and help create a better structure and process is not my gift. I'm going to design and tell you that'll work or that won't work or, you know, make it more like this or like that. But when it comes to figuring out the processes, I really need a lot of help. And so I have a, a few people right now, a couple of people in particular who are really helping me to reorganize the teams and redefine roles and recreate the structure. And of course, as I said, you know, land the blueprint of the philosophy. So I would say it's still in very much in process, but I'm going to say we're halfway there. <laughs> but, you know, that doesn't mean that's actually so because I don't think one ever gets there, you know. So Eileen, um, over the years, you've maintained control of your business and I believe 40% of the company is employee-owned at this point, and I'm sure you've had many offers over the years to sell or to merge. Why have you done that, and how has that kind of affected the way that you think about the business and design of your products? Yeah, I never wanted to sell. It was never really about just making a lot of money. I, I, I think it was too much a part of me or something like that or too much my vision. I don't know. I just wasn't interested in selling it. I think a lot of people start companies with the intention of building it and selling it, but I, I never thought about it like that. I just wanted to serve the women that were my customers, and I just wanted to make clothes that I loved and that they would love and that would work for their lives and make things a little simpler. So I didn't 
really figure out what I wanted to do with the business. And honestly, I'm still trying to figure that out. So I can't remember when it was that I sold 40% to the employees. So it was a really interesting idea. And I think it came through my CFO at the time because he felt I should diversify. And I also had already been doing profit sharing for the employees. So I really want people to feel like owners to be owners, you know, they participate in the upside and the downside. And we've had years that have been more down, like this past year, <laughs> though many signs of hope right now. So things are better on the upward swing. But I don't like this idea that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and the 1% are the only ones who make all the money. It just feels wrong to me. So I liked, I'm a little more democratic in the way I like the company to run. So that's what we did. We shared 40% of the stock. So now I'm in a dilemma of what to do, you know, at my age, what happens, you know, and I've been a little bit fascinated by the thing that Paul Newman did with the charity. And that's an idea, you know, I don't know, my daughter's just graduated in architecture. And I don't know what she's thinking, but she wants to work in architecture. So she's not going to take over this company right now. But I think that Somehow, maybe it belongs back to the employees or to some combination of foundation and employees. And right now, in the midst of really trying to responsibly think of how to take the next steps and, you know, what happens to the company, because I obviously won't live forever, you know. And yet you maintain, from an outsider's view, this magical, youthful curiosity about design, yeah. about your work. You retain a passion for what you're doing. And for a lot of entrepreneurs, founders, or designers who did not found the company or run the company, there is a certain point where the business can kind of suck the spark out of the work. <laughs> right. Could you talk to us about your personal journey and how you keep that youthful curiosity? I'm fascinated by learning. I'm a, like a seeker and a learner. And it just fascinates me. I just keep seeing this organization as a way for me to learn, for others to learn, and whether it's about clothing and how to make it better and how to do that, or I have so many personal lessons I learned through my work and through connecting with people. I struggle to communicate <laughs> and you know, learning to speak up and to say what I want. It's been a big year of that, you know, like, oh, what is this philosophy? How do I articulate that. So I guess I'm just driven by learning. I'm curious. And it's like, I wake up in the morning and like, oh my, what am I going to learn today? <laughs> What's going to happen? You know, what, what happens next? So it's just that I think design is like that. It's just like you design some things that are just great and they just are, and that's great, but there's always, you know, in evolution and something else happening and, new materials to work with and those kinds of things. But I do know that, you know, my days as leading the design work are somewhat numbered. So I don't know what that exactly means, but I, I think it, I think it is you know, sometimes uh, not to be grand, but sometimes I think it's like Bauhaus design or something. It's a concept and it will, if I set it up right, it will live without me, you know, and it doesn't have to be exactly how I would do it. But in principle, I think it can go on. 
Aaron and I are curious. Uh, I'm kind of a t-shirt and jeans kind of guy. I'm a surfer. So <laughs> fashion isn't always at the top of my mind, but would you, would you ever that's consider okay. making, <laughs> that's right. Would you ever consider making a men's line of clothing or have you ever experimented with that? We've experimented a little bit in my lifetime or in my reign, so to speak, probably not, even though one day I think we should, and I think someone will, and I think we definitely should have men's line. Men sometimes wear our clothes. Some of them are very, you know, kind of unisex, you know, and they're very simple lines. And we did try a little bit and uh, weren't successful. And I think we just didn't set it up right. So I think it would require, I think it belongs in the next phase. It's funny because from the very first store I opened, people came flooding in, women with their husbands, men walking in saying, oh, why don't you make men's clothes? And I used to say, I, yeah, I plan to do that in another year or two. <laughs> and, you know, how many years later, 36, seven years later, uh, we don't have a men's line. So I don't know, maybe it's still working in service of women, you know, our bodies are somehow different. And we've always not, we've not had enough of a system. I think men's wear is sort of is a little bit more of a system. And so it's a bit simpler. So maybe I wanted to give women some of the advantage that I think men have in the way they dress simply. That's interesting. I, f I feel like men's wear is sort of like, it's so limited. It's such a box of really what's, what's possible and, and how things fit together. And the whole, whole idea to bring us back to uh, design systems like capsule wardrobes uh, of like, here are the things that all fit into one space uh, yeah. that you can pull together, you can take them on a trip and you can be prepared for whatever and feel your best. Yeah. You know, back to the idea of designing for that emotional experience that people can just feel their best when you equip them with the right tools. Exactly. No, I think that's exactly the goal. You try hard to do that. I was just thinking about menswear, you know, because when you were talking, it was reminding me of, of how I felt about my uniform as a kid. Like it was boring, you know, and a little too much of the tight box I was in, you know, and though it was easy and in some ways I envy men having it so easy, you know, but also it could be more creative. So someone really needs to take on that job of really doing something more fun for men. I remember standing in front of a group of 50 CEOs, all men, except for I think two or three women in the room, you know, so they were really top tier Fortune 500 company CEO executives, all of them in these pristine suits and ties. And I just thought, oh, my God, I sat there in my comfortable, I don't remember, knitted wool suit or something like that. And I thought, I just looked out and I couldn't say anything except for, oh, my God, someone's got to design you guys some clothes, you know, yeah. that must be terribly uncomfortable. <laughs> Yeah. With COVID, I think, but maybe they'll give up the suits and ties. I don't know. I hope so. Eileen, what are you reading, watching, listening to that you're passionate about or has gotten you excited lately? Well, I'm reading a book by uh, Peggy Fitzsimmons. It's called Release. And I'm in the process of decluttering my home and my life. And it sort of fits with my idea of conscious closet and being more and more radically simple. It's helping me. Yeah. That and I'm also reading a book by Bell Hooks on love. And of course, there's no better topic than love. And uh, it's a beautiful book. Fantastic. Well, Eileen Fisher, thank you so much for your uh, generosity and your time today. My delight. It was fun talking with you guys. <laughs> <laughs>